Hello, welcome to another virtual edition of the Theology Podcast. I suppose it's always virtual for listeners because they're actually listening to us on a podcast. But I mean virtual for us. You know, <laughs> we, we're normally in the same room at the same table uh, and we're interrupted regularly by waitresses uh, asking us if we want to drink more. And Tom usually does. <laughs> that, part, that part of the show is still... <laughs> I got my, I got my, hey, all right, Glenn's got, all right. got a porter, I see. <laughs> so we're all back to... Breakfast We're stout. all back to... <laughs> oh, you got a breakfast stout. Yep. Because what's, it's breakfast time somewhere. <laughs> so what's the brewer? Who, who? Founders. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, good. Well, you were just in Michigan, right? Yep. Yep. So the la- you were doing the show from Michigan last week, but now you're back home. Right. Yeah. Um, we're visiting our kids. Uh, they live actually in Indiana, but it's across the border in Michigan. So. Got ya. Got ya. Well, anyway, welcome to the Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley, the uh, senior pastor of the Presbyterian uh, Church of Manchester, which meets online. <laughs> 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 and we have our regular crew Glenn, why don't you start us off uh, today? I'm Glenn Sunshine, virtual professor of history at Virtual Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And Tom? Tom Tom Price, uh, virtual systematic theologian, <laughs> Christian ethicist. Um, and yes, I too am in the virtual world, uh, online teaching for Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, both well, that, that's 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 who we are, and actually, this format is going to work great for us. Uh, we uh, we we were thrilled to see the response to the last uh, episode because we posted on Facebook as the as the video. We're meeting on Zoom. If you folks are listening by means of podcast, and if you want to check this out uh, as you know visually, if you want to see the Zoom video, uh, you can go to the Theology Podcast fan page. Uh, on Facebook, and we'll post it uh, on Monday. And and we might want to mention to all those hackers in the world who know how to hack Zoom, I've been reading articles on this, you're welcome to join for a conversation. You know, you don't have to go that to that extreme with us. You know, come join the show. We'll be glad to share with you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I've, I've noticed a number of things that people are posting about Zoom all of a sudden, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, another thing that makes this fun is we're going to be able to next week have an interview. We're going to have a guest. And he's going to actually join us. You know, he'll be one of the squares. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like Hollywood squares or like, you know, the Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch, yeah. And we're going to have Matthew Dickerson. Now, Matthew uh, is, a, is a friend, and uh, Glenn and I both know him. Uh, he uh, spoke at my church about, I think, seven or eight years ago with Ken Myers. And uh, the theme... Uh, of that particular conference was baptizing the imagination. And one of the talks that Matthew gave is just still sticks with me. And Glenn, you said the same thing, right? Yep. It was a, it was a talk uh, on the Hobbit and, and it was on Bjorn and um, Matthew brought out how the persona or the character of Bjorn was inspired by Beowulf. And it was a masterful treatment. Great stuff. 
But anyways, Matthew teaches, uh, actually computer science, believe it or not, but also hmm. he uh, is a writer. He writes fantasy. Uh, he's, a, he's a Dartmouth guy, uh, so he's, he's pretty sharp. <laughs> but anyway, we'll have Matthew. He, he's also a fly fisherman, and he's really into ecology. And the theme that we're going to be talking about is a book that he co-authored entitled Ents, Elves, and Eriador, uh, Tolkien's, I think, ecological vision. He also did something on C.S. Lewis, I think, called The Fields of, of, of Arbol, uh, uh, about... Uh, Lewis's ecological vision. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about fantasy. We're gonna talk about some stuff that that Matthew's written. He's got a trilogy out. I I should have a trilogy out according to Lynn. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got one of the books out. <laughs> and uh, and and. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. But anyway, why don't we why don't we shift into today's show? And it's Tom's day, so Tom, what are we talking about? Okay. Well, in some ways, we're returning to a theme. I like to do that because I often feel that when we introduce something, it leaves a lot of uh, questions unanswered, and it leaves a lot of room to explore. And we're going to definitely explore and take it into some different directions. We talked about in the past, in past episodes, sort of what it means to be, from a Christian perspective, a human creature, much less, I mean, much more what it means to be a creature at all. And I think oftentimes, um, especially in the direction that intellectual and, and kind of moral thought went in the West in particular, um, this happens to be one of the areas that a lot of redefinition happened and a and a lot of our background assumption, even as Christians, um, has adopted the redefinition rather than sort of classic Christian understanding of what it means to be a creature, um, in general, what it means to be a human creature in particular. Now, I'm not interested in revisiting the, the way we went about it before. We talked a lot about once we begin to contemplate who God is, we begin to see all things in relation to God, and we begin to see the gift character of what it means. So at the heart of being a creature is gift. Um, we are not the self-existent one. We are not the sources of our own being. We receive everything that we are as being from he who is. Um, and because of that, we're in a receptive mode towards everything that we are. And we talked about ways in which sort of like feminist theology, different things kind of saw that as, as kind of a dangerous image that made creatures nothing more than absolutely dependent on some other and leads to certain kinds of hierarchy and abuse. And, um, and usually the classic Christian answer is it only does when you don't read it in accord with the truth of what's being communicated. That's not what this show's about. <laughs> Um, but what we want, want to do is focus on, especially in light of a challenging time like we have now, where we put a lot of our confidence as moderns in what technology has done, what our mastery of the environment has done. Um, we put a lot of confidence in kind of building our own Titanic, if you will. And in building that Titanic, we've kind of, you know, we're all partying along, the music is great, we're celebrating, and all of a sudden something happens, an iceberg shows up, and we happen to uh, find out that the Titanic we built can't 
control manage or stop the the hold that's been produced well, you and know, so I, we're thinking that, <laughs> that, that whole thing right there is a show in itself i don't want to get yeah. us off track but that that's a that's a great thought well i think that's really where where this I, I'd, I'd be happy to take this because it's really okay. what what this does is it kind of dismantles um, an idolatrous picture we've created of ourselves, and then it returns us back to something of the reality of, of things. Um, and, and of course, the byproduct should be a certain kind of humility, right, in, in the face of this. Um, um, so what we have here is something that um, may or may not be related to our development of technology, but something within the finite fallen world that human beings at this moment don't have the capacity to control and they're watching the limits of even the most advanced sciences and everything else rush with everything every gift they have to try to to somehow bring under control and 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 uh and kind of limit the consequences of um first and foremost being death and extermination right and 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 so what we have here is a huge, huge reality um, disruption that brings back before us um, something very, uh, well, our finitude, our contingency, our dependency, but also our fallenness, and yet also an occasion for hope without being unrealistic and escapist. So we have currently, we talk about moments of, of uh, what form our spiritual life should take, but also what form our witness should take. We have something just in the reality of our finitude and contingency, something that reminds us of the riches we have as Christians to actually start addressing this reality the right way rather than trying to to mask it or eclipse it or become overly optimistic with our own resources and actually uh, hone in on the fact that yes we have a titanic sinking um, what should our discernment and analysis look like and then what should our witness look like so that's kind of the snowball i've thrown out there yeah uh, one thought that occurs to me is um that you know we're in a moment of crisis and crisis crito judgment this, this is a time for us to exercise judgment and what kind of judgment will we exercise uh i think wisdom uh in the biblical in the biblical model is good judgment um i think sometimes people have a hard time sorting out the difference between say different ways of talking about 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 this, uh, you know, sometimes the, the term reason gets used. Sometimes uh, the term understanding gets used. Sometimes the word knowledge gets used. And in each case, there's a there's more or less, uh, you know, some tincture of the moral or the meaningful in in those things. I think I think you know we we've we've all come across people who are very knowledgeable but are moral imbeciles. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so good judgment obviously requires some knowledge, information. I guess would be an okay way to, to put it. But even the word information 
that that word is is, is puzzling in the sense that it's been appropriated. Uh, it's, it strikes me as having some some you know sort of roots in the Aristotelian way of looking at the world. You know, when we think about you know form in you know sort of things that are you know like when we think about you know the difference between Plato and Aristotle. You know, one of the ways to think about it is you know. For Plato, the forms are out there, and for Aristotle, the forms are inside of things, and you know, so information it would mean to be, in a sense, being informed, so that 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 your moral and uh, you know intellectual life is being formed, but that's not the way we use it. We use it like in this as a as a synonym for data, you know. Just kind of raw material, and one of the things that's come out of this all, all this, I, I don't I don't see how people can't find find uh, reason for disbelief when it comes to mathematical models uh, of something as large and complex as the atmosphere of our planet when we can't get even close to what's happening on the ground with this pandemic you know the numbers are just all over the place and i you just don't know what to make of stuff yeah i mean i think we see that often i always tell people you know sometimes we think of because so many things have worked well with the knowledge we've gained through according ourselves with a real order of creation (laughs) um but also look at what happens with just trying to predict the weather you know, you, you have so many contingencies, so many aspects of finitude that you, you can do a lot with it. You can predict, come close, but you can't control it. <laughs> not, not, um, not, not in this way. And even when we control certain things, there are aspects of that reality that always escapes and transcends us. We're just talking cre- created reality. Yeah, I, I think that this is some, that this lies behind the totalitarian urge because yeah. Because as, you know, the scientists are really good when they can, and the experts in general are really are pretty good, I should say, when they control the variables. Yes. Now, when governments want to control the variables, what do we call that? We call that communist China. Yeah. That's what we call that. They they want to stamp out anything they can't control, and we're getting reports on an ongoing basis of doctors disappearing and pastors being in prison because they can't be controlled. Or won't be controlled. Well, it, and it's interesting this notion of control. This is going to kind of it's going to go like a back a couple steps and then maybe move the conversation from there. Um, but I don't know. Uh, Seventy three. I was very little at the time, but there was a book that came out. Let me see if I get the title right. Uh, Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death. Huh. Um, I don't. Yeah, and so he's really it's just sort of a social psychologist, but he was really looking at death soberly and he had a lot of brilliant analysis i don't go everywhere he goes but i'm going to read a couple of things because this notion and i've often talked about it with descartes i mean descartes is dealing with anxiety and how do we control the anxiety of a world that is is you know as he knew it in upheaval um it 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 was he was to do it through instrumental reason of course i think therefore i am he grounds that kind of thinking I know he does it in, in a deity, but the way the whole thing is conceived is very different than the classical world, much less the Christian vision. Um, and, and this is one of the things, they were kind of 
four key points in, in, in um, Becker's book about the denial of death, but he was really talking about this, this he, he would probably see it as something more general to humanity. And I would see that he's interpreting fallen humanity in the fallen world. I mean, that, as a Christian, how I'd be looking at it. But I mean, one of the things that he first admits is it's something that's very hard for the proud modern. And he, he kind of goes into some explanation. His first thing is something obvious. The world is terrifying, right? Um, nature is red tooth and claw. Um, and so technology and all of the advances we've, we have have buffered us from a lot of that. So yes, it doesn't happen every week that you know, we get eaten by a tiger, right? Um, but on the other hand, it still does happen that someone does get eaten by a tiger. It throws us off a little bit. But now you have a tiger that's eating a large population of the planet. And this is something we don't have a weapon for at the moment or a known weapon for. And so here, but he talks about what we end up doing with this um, in the face of this terror. And what does the terror of death do? Well, it, it, the fact that nature is terrifying is it creates this anxiety. And this anxiety is bound up with what? It reveals something about ourselves that um, this is what Becker calls the vital lie that is at the heart of us, that we can die, that we're not just finite and limited and contingent, but there's a sting of death. There is, there is, we can, we can die and, and without the right context of that death, that death in Christ, right? We, we, we carry with it this terrifying. And so what we do is he says, we build these, these worlds around us. On the one hand, we deny that we're, of death. Um, on the other hand, we reveal in that denial just how dependent we are. We seek all these other creaturely ways to assuage that, protect us from that death to the point we exploit everything else to our own protection. And, and so, and this is sort of what you're getting at with political totalitarianism and different forms of it is what you're, 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 you're building up an impregnable wall to protect from death, finitude, the consequences and risk of other creatures. I mean, this kind of thing. And so he, he, the way he puts it is pretty, pretty profound. He, he talks about this, this way in which it's almost what we end up developing because it, the vital lie is our first line of defense that protects us from the painful awareness of our helplessness. And he goes on to kind of the psychological development but he goes, we, we think that we can end up protecting ourselves because we end up denying so many core aspects of our creatureliness and humanity, so many goods of life in order to protect ourselves. We sacrifice, for example, pleasure to buy immortality. His point here is not hedonism versus um, eternity. What he's talking about here is we deny core aspects of, of communion and, and human, human gift because in, in that sacrifice to, to preserve our human life. But he says, puts it another way. He says, we end up uh, creating something called a hero system that allows us to believe that we can transcend death by participating in some earthly cause that is of worth, right? And he calls this an ersatz immortality. By sacrificing ourselves to conquer an empire, to build a temple, um, to, to kind of build a legacy. Um, this, and he says that this is at the heart of the symbolic systems, which we actually call societies, which actually are basically systems of religion. 
And then he pushes it. He goes, this means that members of an intricate symbol system are covertly religious. The ideological conflicts between cultures are essentially battles between immortality projects, holy wars. And wow. so, so interestingly, he yeah, sees a sort of, uh, uh, he sees something and in, in, uh, I think his, his other, the other best quote at the end is this, and I think we could play with this for a bit. He goes, Becker never found a mass audience. And the reason he thinks so is because he, sh he shames us with the knowledge of how easily we will shed blood to purchase this, the assurance of our own righteousness. He oh, reveals yeah. how our need to deny our nakedness and be arrayed in glory keeps us from acknowledging that this emperor has no clothes. And I think it's another set of images that, I mean, right back to the same issue in the garden, we try to clothe our nakedness and these systems, worldly ways of protecting ourselves often cause us to lose so many of those core aspects of our, the gift of humanity. Um, that they end up becoming sacrificing much more than than all the goods that we have been given as creatures. So anyway, I think it's just kind of an interesting way to go into that topic. Yeah, Glenn, do you have any thoughts? You, you've not really jumped in yet. Yeah, um, th there are a couple of them. One of the things that I find ironic in this is that we are not only trying to avoid death, we're not only trying to, in a sense, be immortal or making believe we're immortal, but that in itself leads us to adopt policies that work against the goal. So, for example, um, New York had loads of opportunities and they were told they should buy more ventilators. Okay. <laughs> It, you know, this was, this was a known fact that they didn't have enough quite a while ago. The governor had money that he could have put into ventilators, but instead he chose to put it into other things that were designed largely to mask the fact that they didn't have enough ventilators. Hmm. It, it, it went into various bureaucratic projects and things like that, rather than having the money being put into the ventilators. Now, why would he do that? First of all, political expediency. Yeah. But secondly, the, the assumption that the world is a steady state, and since we don't need ventilators now, we won't need them later. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we're not facing a pandemic, so why should we prepare for one? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was driving back from Grove City College with my daughter a couple of weeks ago when Grove City shut down like all schools shut down. Mm -hmm bring her home and we drove through Pennsylvania and uh, when we went through Pennsylvania we went through different you know, we went on different toll roads and there were no, there was nobody in the toll booths we just drove right through got to New York they were fully staffed <laughs> and I thought, probably still are <laughs> <laughs> taking the money and uh, you know one of the things that just astounds me and I maybe this is just something that's that's you have to just grow up to know, you know, one of the things we teach our children is to defer to authority and to do what they're told. And, and I understand why that's important, you know, but because, you know, there are people who love and care for us who are older than us and know more than us and so forth. But when you get to, when you get to, to, you know, adulthood and you still carry that sort of naive trust and, def, and sort of in, in sort of, 
look at you know government bureaucracies in the same way that you looked yeah. at your parents or your your teachers in school. Man, you have just committed one of the dumbest things that you know acts of of naivete that you can ever be guilty of. Furthermore, you you have done exactly what you've been told, and a lot of these kids will you know say, "No, I'm just me. I'm I'm." you know, I'm against the system or whatever. But there's some of the most deferential people in the world when it comes to the welfare state and, and the promises of the, of the, uh, of the bureaucrats who run that stuff. And, uh, and it, interestingly, th- I mean, theologically, I mean, you have the same ones who conceive of the Christian God's relation to creation as absolute will and we're to bend to an absolute will, which is not Christianity. We've discussed that before. But they will do, they'll jump right into that when it's the state. Yeah. <laughs> a pseudo absolute, and they will just bend right towards it. But I do think, and I know Glenn has another point, so I don't want to throw him up, but I do think this isn't far removed from, from the point that uh, Beckers make, is that the reason they do that is because, A, there is, there is an anxiety going on related to their finitude and dependency. And if they can trust in something that's going to protect them, and that seems to pr- make those promises of protection, then they're going to give loyalty to it because it, 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 it eases the anxiety. Yeah, I'm reminded of a cartoon I've seen that people post regularly on my Facebook page. Every time it comes around, somebody posts it to me. It's a couple of old guys sitting in a library. <laughs> and uh, it says, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Those who remember history are doomed to sit by helplessly while others repeat it. <laughs> and, you know, when, when I look at these that, things... That's, the, that's us. Yeah, all, all this stuff we're talking about, I'm, I'm looking at this and thinking, you know what? They need a good history class. <laughs> because we, you know, in every one of these, we pretty much know where it ends up. Yeah. As we've seen it happen before. And we somehow managed to convince ourselves that this time it's going to be different. No, it isn't. But we somehow managed to think it is. Um, you know, I look back and, and uh, yeah, when, when you were talking about the denial of death and things like that, one of the things that I was struck by is if you read early modern medieval literature or whatever, one of the things that people are really concerned about, a a, a key motivating factor for them in their discussions is fame and everlasting glory, meaning they want to be remembered after they die. Yeah. And we don't think that way. We want to be celebrities we don't want fame and everlasting glory because if you've got everlasting glory, you're dead. That's right. Yeah. But they, yeah. they, uh, people in the past, because I, th- I think people in the past were much more honest at dealing with life or to be more precise, dealing with death than we are. People yeah. at home. They didn't go off to a hospice or a nursing home. They died at home with the family. The funerals came out of the home. If you look at colonial houses, frequently in the kitchen, there is something that's called a, a, a casket door, I think is the name for it. Yeah. It's the door that you open to move the casket in and out when you're holding the wake and then going to the funeral. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, we don't even have to deal with the fact that when I want a steak, some cow has got to die. I buy it a styrofoam tray covered with saran wrap. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, well, they, they, death yeah. was a much more present reality to people in the past. So they were more honest about it. And they didn't certainly think about these things of immortality and such. But they approached it in a really, really different way uh, than the way we do it. We try to make believe it ain't going to happen. Yeah. And, and I think that that's some of what uh, Becker is on to the way in which we continuously are creating systems and a whole symbolic world in which it is increasingly removed so that we can increasingly deny it. Yet, on the other hand, we know a lot about it and we also become a culture of it. Right. We create the abortion industry, euthanasia. And I mean, but because we've removed the human, even the, the sense of true, genuine creaturehood to the aging and the 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 you know the most vulnerable. Um, therefore, we are able to just e eradicate as though this isn't even a sort of death. This is just merely just when personhood doesn't have the same vital function in in um, in you know sort of what we consider to be vital and functioning. Um, it can just be defined away. And it's amazing that we can just define it away so easily. I mean, you look at the, the absolute um, passion that it drives Western culture to, to redefine the, you know, the fetus as you know, not a right, human being. Right. You know? right. um, but you see this, and these are the, the weird ironies. And here's a little quote uh, Nicholas Lash has in this little article called Recovering Contingency. But he's talking about what, what we do know as Western modern. Because we know that we're fragile, interactive products of biology and circumstance, wholly dependent at every level of existence upon complex webs of causes and effects of which we form a tiny part. And yet in our discussions about what it means to be a human, we actually throw that all out the window. <laughs> and we live in the, this kind of notion that, that yes, either we're, we're buffered away from it, or we've so invested ourselves in these kind of, yeah, things that trivial senses of what it means to be a human, celebrity or popular for a moment. And these all sort of are, are you know, the, the, the non-clothing of the emperor, right? Um, emperor running around with nothing on. And then you have something like this hit. Not everyone's affected by it yet. So yeah, it's, it's bad, but it, they're, not, they're not seeing it directly. Um, but when you hear the stories of people in there, I mean, even the first thing, you've heard story after story of people working in medicine and health saying, look, I wasn't a believer before, and I've realized my, the humility of my incapability. I put all my trust in science, and here I am looking at its limits right in the face. Um, and these are people, amazingly, that, that uh, are in the interest of preserving life, you know? Um, and so what you get here is this kind of, you know, what you could metaphorically call a Gethsemane moment, right? Um, Lord, if it's your will, take this from us. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But in that, right, you have, you, you have this. Well, we don't have an interruption by a waitress. <laughs> so, That's so, great. So, Glenn, what's the name of the cat? What's the name of the cat? The, the, the name of the cat is Sasquatch. She's got double... <laughs> in front uh, yes. so it's uh usually shortened to sass I'd originally, I'd originally wanted to name him rugen because he's got some toes uh, <laughs> reference but my wife vetoed it because she said she didn't want him named after a villain 
So, yeah, and so my, my last point of the Gethsemane is that what you have with, with Christ in Gethsemane in the face of a creature confronting death, and, you know, there's a lot there I don't need to unpack now. But you have... Uh, Tom, just mm -hmm. before you move on, on that point, one of the things we don't take into account when we say the Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus prayed, thy will be done. And in his case, goodbye. <laughs> in his case, God's will was that he go to the cross. Yes. So yes. when we pray, thy will be done, what we're really saying is thy will, not mine. Yes. Whatever yes. that price might be. And it's interesting because what we have going on here is not what most people think we have going on. This is the reason I mentioned the episode of, of Gethsemane, is what we do not have is dominant will for bending the creature to it because the, 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 the creator needs the creature to submit. <laughs> what you have here is something wholly about the creature and for the creature. It's that the one that is the one who desires life for the creature is the one that can be trusted in the face of death and 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 so what you have there at that moment in christ is he knows absolutely he can trust the one who is life with his life because the giver of life and so what you have is the resurrection is the the not only the vindication of all this but it is what trust looks like when it faces the radical creaturely limit that death supplies and sees that it isn't it isn't this kind of idealistic hope it's not a this worldly hope but it is one that actually in our creaturely limits even in death itself has does not is not that it, it requires a moment of trust it's a moment of faith that the one who is life desires life is the one that can be trusted even in the face of death and so that's why one of the things that Christianity offers is not an escape from this fact that death is there, that we're going to die. What it does is it brings us down to the same hope that Christ has in that the one who is the giver of life is the one who is ready to give life. And so what we have in Christ, of course, is that life. Um, and so what you, what you get a contrast, we're not pessimists. We're not saying, oh, this is it. We're not optimists. We're not sitting here saying, oh, you know, just hang in there. We're going to work it all out. Okay. I do believe by God's goodness, grace, and what he's given, should the Lord tarry, as they say, these things will, will find a way of, of coming back and, and healing. We'll, we'll find answers. And the creation has built into it by God's grace, the, 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 the logos to, to work its healing out. Nevertheless, death is not final even now. And so what we have here is hope. And hope is sort of not being, being just always taken out of the dark, but being able, as Nicholas Lashley says, being able to whistle while you're in it, right? Being able to sing a hymn um, at midnight of Easter that, uh, that Christ is risen. Right. Yeah, my mind has been Tolkien a lot lately because I'm working on this Bombadil book. And uh, there are so many ways that Tolkien explores this um you know we have with the bombadil sequence of course um you know the, the hobbits 
uh, in the Barrow White's uh, lair, you know, in the tomb, uh, when uh, they leave Tom Bombadil's. And then Tom delivers them in a very, uh, you know, uh, sort of reminiscent scene that uh, you know, brings to mind, you know, Easter morning, you know, with the stone being rolled away and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then there's the, the, the episode later on in Lord of the Rings where, you know, they're, they're uh, walking the paths of the dead, you know, and Aragorn is leading them through the paths of the dead uh, so that he has a shortcut to get to Minas Tirith to save the city. And he, you know, uh, the oath breakers who haunt the paths of the dead, you know, he calls them to fulfill their oath at last. And, and in that moment, they're, they, you know, when they do that, they uh, are released from this sort of uh, nether state. But as they're passing through the paths of the dead in the darkness, uh, it's Aragorn who has the courage to uh, persevere through it. Uh, and Gimli, the dwarf, if you recall, is uh, embarrassed because he's, you know, he's as, as afraid as a little child could be in that in that moment. Hmm. And uh, but I, I think that in all of this, you know, this this sort of looming uh, sort of um, you know sort of specter of death that is behind everything in that story, but it also behind everything in our lives. And I think this this particular piece that you've read to us uh, from Tom uh, helps us to see that everything about civilization, uh, you know, could be understood to be a strategy for dealing with that specter. You know, how how do we how do we how do we reconcile ourselves to that? In what way? You know, I, I like the idea of the conflict of civilizations being warring ideologies of immortality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think he, I, I think he's one of the, you know, there have been a few others in that social psychology world that have, have kind of thought about that, but that was very pronounced. Um, I think I'd like to explore that a bit more. Um, it's, you know, you sort of have it, you know, um, in scripture where, where it says, you know, where are all these wars come from, but according to these lusts, but again, what are those things driven by? Well, human need, but wrongly assuaged you know, wrongly satisfied. And it's not far removed from this. We have this fundamental sting of death. We need a covering, right? But we want to cover with what we have. But we, before God, are naked. And death is always a reminder, the dust, Ash Wednesday, that we are naked before God, right? It's a reminder of our nakedness. It's a, it's a con that we, we, we are, you know, the dust we shall return. Um, there's a lot of metaphors going on here, but but I think that what ends up happening is yes, we start building towers. Um, part of these are the gift of grace, but part of it is our rebellion, you know, and rejection of grace. And so, so Christianity is is a call to expose the mythologies that we've created and then re-anchor those things in in a, in, in something that is not reality denial, um, but one is hopeful. Um, it has a real hope, not Marxist hope, <laughs> but re resurrection, resurrection of the body, but nevertheless, um, one that also recognizes death, judgment, um, and, and, you know, both of those things. But I think that's one of the things that, you know, humility, 
um, is the byproduct of, I think, of, you know, I think several theologians have put it that humility is the byproduct of proper recognition of what it means to be a creature. And humility positions itself in such a way that it receives the gift properly of being a creature with thankfulness. Um, that's its contemplative dimension, but then its active orientation is that it doesn't cease trying to live even with the, 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 temporary, the temporal judgment of death sitting on it. It is able to live freely because our finitude is not a death sentence for us. It's actually a life sentence. Glenn, I can see you're trying to say something. The interesting thing here, my mind's going in two very, very different directions. Uh, One of them is Tolkien. Um, Tolkien at one point referred to death as as, uh, Eru's gift to humanity, uh, as his gift to man, as opposed to the elves who are naturally immortal. Uh, We had a gift, and that's that we could die, or that we would die. Elves can die. We will die. And the reason for that is that in a world that is in constant change, constant flux, a world of decay and things like that, uh, death can be a genuine blessing living eternally through, uh, well, decay, destruction, wars, and things like that isn't necessarily a really good thing. Yeah, one of the things you know, that the, the other direction. Let me let me get the other one out here too. The other direction I went was Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy. There is a character whose name, if I remember right, is Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged. And he he had um, d- due to something that had gone wrong in an experiment, he became immortal. <laughs> he had a great time at this, you know, uh, for for centuries and centuries. But the problem is that as someone who was a mortal being, he didn't have the psychological mechanisms that are inbred into immortal beings and got to the point where he couldn't stand it any longer. And he was so mad at the universe that, he, that what he was going to do is go through and insult personally everything in the universe. going to do it in alphabetical order. Um, now, I love Douglas Adams, but, but, but he's actually on to the same thing that Tolkien was on to when Tolkien talked about death being a gift. That yeah, I, when you face the death of everybody you know and love, generation after generation after generation after generation, this has got to produce despair. Yeah, what I was going to uh, introduce at this point is sort of the Eastern view. Because they don't have a transcendent realm, they don't have that, you know, everything's sort of, uh, it, we're talking about a monist, you know, a monism. You're not uh, talking about Eastern Orthodox. No, I'm not talking about. Not, <laughs> yeah. just, I'm not just referring a, to anything. Just Christian. in case there's any one of them out there listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about Hindus, Buddhists, those folks. Yeah. Uh, so what they what they're required to do is, uh, you know, when, you know, one of the ways you can tell the difference between an American New Agey, you know, moron and a genuine Hindu is what they think about reincarnation. 
You know, the, the Hindu will say, oh, no, I, I have to live again. I have yeah. to go through <laughs> suffering again. I have to get sick again. I have to die again. An American, will, an American New Age person, you know, some goofy person who writes books uh, in California will say, oh, boy, I get to live again. That's a word. That's the difference. That's the difference. Yeah, and if they do past life regressions, they're always the pharaoh. They're never the slave building the pyramid. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That, that's right. Yeah, and and you know, I, and I imagine that uh, Becker's work um, has a much stronger. Um, well, let me put it a different way. I think Becker probably is criticizing a lot of the American psychology, than. Um, you know, other religious psychologies with his work, because I think there is much more built into it often is this idealistic modernist vision that, um, yeah, everything, you know, it's I, another way of putting it is uh, Tarkovsky's uh, did uh, Lem's uh, work. Uh, was it this? What is the sci-fi? Um, Solaris. The, the, so, yeah, Solaris. Solaris, right. So anyway, in the original, you know, Tarkovsky, the hero dies, right? The main character anyway dies. In the George Clooney version, he lives happily ever after. Um, it just shows you the, the difference. And when a Russian watches the American <laughs> version, for example, this is kind of their, their, their door, you know, Dorshna, whatever their word is for disgust, you know, this is, this is right, disgusting. Right. Um, you know, in, in that, mm -hmm. In Chinese films, the heroes tend to die, almost always. Yeah. Hmm. And the reason for that, apparently, is their concept of courage in China. Uh, they believe that if you know you can win a fight, continuing to fight is not courageous. It is only courageous when you are facing a battle you know you cannot win and continue to fight anyway. Yeah, that's very much like the Norse uh, way of thinking. I, I'm in a group right now that we're reading the Prosetta and uh, and uh, the, the saga of the Volsungs, you know. And so, you know, in, in the Norse understanding, uh, what you have is, you know, with Ragnarok, Ragnarok is where the gods lose. <laughs> and Valhalla is is not this marvelous place where you just, all the warrior, the greatest warriors of the, of, in, the, in the universe go, or the world go to just kind of hang out and party. They're actually waiting for Ragnarok so that they can join it with Odin in a lost cause mm -hmm. and lose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, a, and, and, and the last thing you want is for Odin to really like you. Because if Odin really likes you, you die. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because he's, he's looking for guys like you. And in Middle-earth, um, Tolkien talks about, well, Middle-earth itself is a, a uh, term from uh, the Norse, but uh, he the elves talk about fighting the long defeat. Yeah, I think that's exactly a good, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, uh, this is where, you know, new heaven and new earth, new creation, uh, transcendence. These are the things that come with Christianity, you know, and because of Christ, I mean, He's the window through, through whom we, you know, see these things, things hidden from the foundation of the world. I'm reading, you know, fascinating, I'm reading right now uh, Yoram uh, Hazoni's book, uh, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture. And of course, you know, Yoram is, is Jewish, and he, you know, he teaches at the University of Jerusalem. 
and uh, he's very well read. He I mean he, he he knows his New Testament better than most Christians, and he knows. <laughs> it's, it's interesting how that that was the same way at Oxford. It was, it was oh, always yeah. the, the Jews who had read the New Testament and understood it. I, I actually I don't want to throw your point off, but I actually oh. met some Jewish uh, colleagues uh, during my studies at Oxford who could argue and defend the doctrine of the Trinity far better than most Christians, even though it wasn't for them, as they well, said. Well, you know, that's the thing about, us. you know, for, for <laughs> those, you know, the three of us, you know, we've kind of been in that world, you know, when I was in Cambridge and Harvard and stuff like that, I knew atheists who knew their New Testaments could quote it, who knew the church history better than the 95% of the people in the pews in our churches. Quoted in the Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> so, you know, when you go into that environment, it's kind of like a crucible. It's sort of like, you yeah. know, stand and deliver. You know, if you're going to be a Christian in this yeah. place, you know, you're not dealing with a bunch of bozos and people who don't know your stuff. They know your stuff yeah. as well as probably you do. Yeah. Uh, the, the challenge is for you to know their stuff. Yeah. You see, and that's the problem that most of us uh, in yeah. the church have is we don't yeah. know their stuff stuff. And, and, and one of the things that I'm passionate about is yeah. uh, getting out of the ghetto and starting yeah. to read other people's stuff. Uh, but anyway, I, I've, I've gone off on one of my, uh, my <laughs> diatribes. <laughs> Almost moved into a, a second show at this point. We could keep it going. <laughs> no, but it's, no, I, I think you're, I think you're right on. But anyway, you were saying something about, uh, the writer of this book, uh, he's a Hebrew. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yoram, you know, when he's, when he's dealing with hiddenness, you know, what mm. he's trying to do is he's trying to demonstrate that Hebrew scripture is, has a perspicuity, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, uh, opaque, you know, that, that, that uh, a reasonable person should be able to, to, to derive, you know, a nourishment from it. And I think that's right. I mean, there, there are certainly things about it. But uh, even so... Um, and if I, if he were in the room with us, I think we could press him on the point a little bit and he would have to admit, you know, cause obviously, you know, we have, you know, the statement that the hidden things belong to God, you know, and the things that are revealed belong to yeah. us. It's, you know, and it's the, the glory of God to hide a thing, you know, from, from Proverbs and it's the glory of Kings to search them out. So it's not as though everything is just so clear, uh, you know, and there, well, so, and, and I, and I think that was the, the, Jesus, the rabbi Jesus, <laughs> hey, well, um, Yeshua, um, was actually someone who challenged that. He, he goes back, and in a sense, he said, if, if your spiritual condition is accorded the right way, then you would see that the whole of Scripture speaks of me. So in a sense, yes, it is opaque, but because you are not in accord with truth, you miss everything. And this was sort of his criticism. You know, what's it? Go ahead. Good. Go ahead. The, the the analogy I use for this when I'm teaching um, uh, typology or or Christ in the Old Testament kinds of things is there there was an uh, author of um, uh, espionage novels named Anthony Price. New York Times said that Price writes thrillers for grownups. I mean that was that that was the the tagline that stuck with me. These were really really well done books. And, you know, there's a mystery in all of them and all you, you go through the whole thing and you get to the end. It's like, oh, wow, that's how it all worked out. And you go back and reread it. And if you have read it recently enough so that you remember the punchline, when you reread it, you say, how could I possibly have missed this the first time through? 
I mean, it's right there in your face, but somehow you don't see it until you know the ending. Yeah. 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 I think, I think when it comes to death, we're dealing with something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what, what Tolkien is getting at with the gift to men. You know, one of the things, of course, about the legendarium, Tolkien's legendariums, the Silmarillion and so forth, Lost Tales and everything, is the difficulty that men have in accepting the gift. Yeah. And, and also the envy of the elves it co- that comes out every once in a while, that because the elves don't know, you know, in the same way that men don't know, they don't assume the worst. They actually assume the best. So when elves at different points in the legendarium are reflecting upon the fate of men, there's a sense in which they're a little bit, uh, you know, uh, incredulous at at the despair of men. Uh, but there's also a sense that there's something in store for them, for men, that is is going to be wonderful that they won't have access to. They won't have. Yeah. And... One of the things that you see in Tolkien is the constant quest to try to overcome death on the part of people. This is part of the whole background of Numenor and all of that sort of thing. And every time they try to do it, you get either disasters, Numenor goes down, or ring raids. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm going to take it a little bit of a different way of putting it, but I think it, it, it answers something that is often apologetic question. It's that oftentimes people think that the notion of transcendence with Christianity, the eternality, the focus on the, that which we can trust in the midst of all change is sort of escapist, that it, it is a way of holding on to some kind of, you know, drug, if you will, during all of the challenges of life and, and, and everything else. And no, what's going on in Christianity is that hyper-realism, if you will, of saying that we have this hope knowing that we're going to die. We have this hope knowing that we are, though God providentially does oftentimes protect us, sustain us, that doesn't mean these things are not going to be things we confront, death, disease, everything else. What we're not, as those who trust in him, going to confront is that sting of death. And I think the, the imagery you're talking about is, is engaging that picture. You're dealing with a thick realism in the kind of language that's being used with Tolkien. That is not someone that, that, that is going to put a, a safe ship like the modern world that puts a big buffer around that's going to bounce through and protect from all of these things. It's not something that's going to protect necessarily from the death, but what it is going to do is going to place us in such a position that we don't have to lose confidence that the giver of life is the giver of life. (laughs) And so what we have in the midst of the world that is not yet perfected where we have to see disease, suffering, death, the loss of life, our own death, is that we have something that in the limit and in the gift of death is life. Right. And that's, I think that's the big thing. I think that's what Tolkien's trying to get a hold of. Life is present 
and it it is what transcends. This isn't a psychological hope because it is not escaping. It's showing you that that final definition of death is not death. You know, we, we've talked a lot about uh, God as being pure being, and we have being because we derive our being from God's being. Oh God. Yeah. In John, it talks about the Father and the Son having life in themselves. So it's like God is pure being, yeah. and therefore the source of all other being. He is also life and therefore the source of all life. Yes. And, and thus, as the, and the Holy the, Spirit is typically, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, you know, we, we draw a distinction between ontology and, well, living life, whatever term. I, I'm not even sure we've got a term for it. Yeah. I don't think in divine simplicity, going back yeah. to their theme, there is no difference between being and life. That's right. That's right. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the giver of life, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so, I mean, that's what, what is Christ sent into to be, 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 be the help of the church and its witness, right? The divine life, right? Mm-hmm. The giver of life. And so that's, I mean, and, and so the great trust, I'm the giver of life, trust me, is what is at the heart of the gospel in this, I think, in this time and in, in our work and witness for the time being as we're here. Um, it's the moment of hope, profound hope. Um, that yes, you know, the Titanic is, you know, the ship is sinking. <laughs> and uh, in the world as we know it is sinking, whether it's now or later in the fullest sense. But guess what? Um, you know, the, the ocean of being, <laughs> who is God, is not sinking. It's actually that which, which you'll either swim in, walk on, or drown. Right. Well, and this then also ties in with the orthodox view of salvation, which is built around theosis, becoming partakers of the divine nature. Right. The divine nature is life in itself. Yeah. Then becoming a partaker of that is obtaining eternal life. Right. They, that, they, they just go hand in glove. That, that's a great place to stop because we've actually gone our allotted time. <laughs> <laughs> Ending on a high note. But, Not that uh, our listeners have anything else to do, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, as we wrap up, uh, is there anything you want to say, Tom, is sort of to sum up things? Um, I, I did, if I can find it. I may not be able to find it. I had a little, well, little bit of a... Well, well while, you're look at, while you're looking for it, what, let's go to Glenn. Do you have anything else you want uh, to say, Glenn? Uh, this is a, it, it, it's obviously a very timely topic, a great topic, and um, I think that we would do well to be a bit more honest about the life that we are in and the fact that uh, in life we are in the midst of death. You know, this is just, this is, you know, the, the ep- epidemic, the pandemic uh, is kind of shoving this in our face, but it's no different now than it was a year ago. You know, we're... Right. We're still, we've, we've always been in this situation. Um, yeah. And now that we've got the pandemic to remind us of it, it might be good for us to spend a little more time thinking about that and preparing for it. That's a great thought. Have you found your I have, quote? I have my done? quote. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and bear with me. And, and just because I quote people does not mean I agree with everything for those out there. Okay, this is a quote by Nicholas Lash. He was a professor of mine. He wrote a little book called uh, Believing Three Ways in One God. It's about the Trinity. 
Um, he and I disagree exactly everywhere a Reformed and a Catholic disagree. But on this point, in the Trinity, we agree. But he's talking about eternal life, and this sort of sums up what Glenn was just saying. He goes, it's interesting that everlasting life, which we are given in Christ, is a somewhat misleading translation of eternal. Life in God does not go on and on and on and on. It is simply boundless. It's inexhaustible gift. Um, but this is the way he puts it. He said, it might be frightening for a lot of us when we hear St. Paul so, well, you know, we have no imagination for what this is. You know, there's nothing within the earth that gives us this. He goes, he goes it may be understandable that in our nervous curiosity for a course, we often seem inescapable of simply trusting in God. Um, we should seek to, you know, to peer or speculate beyond the boundary of death to wonder what eternal life is like. Yet all such speculation is, of course, quite futile. For we have and can have no idea. This was St. Paul's point. But if we are unable to rest content with Paul's insistence that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man conceived what God has in store for those who love him, and would be wise at least to stay with it. We would be wise at least to stay in imagery God has in store for those who love Him. Um, let's stick with this imagery, which wears its metaphorical status on its sleeve. And I'll end with this. This is this is quite beautiful. In Isaiah's vision, which the Book of Revelation will take up at the coronation feast of all creation's King. Here's the quote. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of fat things, a feast of wines, of the lees, fat things full of marrow, of wine on the lees, well refined. And he will destroy on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. So that imagery God has left us with is the best analogy for the hope that we have. And as we approach, of course, Easter, <laughs> you know, virtual Easter maybe this year, um, that's, that's kind of a, a big chunk of theological gift we've been given to, to offer the world, not an escape, but a real hope that is grounded in, in, in the way things really are and yet the way they will be. Well, that's a good spot to stop. I mean, the already in the not yet. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, thanks, thanks, Thomas. It's been, a, it's been a good conversation. And we thank you for listening to the, to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support. Uh, we appreciate all the folks who uh, you know, leave you know, good reviews for us on, in different, on different platforms. We appreciate the folks who take the time to actually you know, seek out our, our Facebook page. You know, we, we don't make it easy for folks, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're glad that folks uh, care about us and, and, and even give. Um, and next week, you know, we're just to remind you, we're going to have Matthew T. Wilson, not Matthew T. Wilson, Matt, Matthew, Matthew, uh, I'm just, Dickerson. Dickerson. <laughs> what was I thinking of Matthew T. Wilson? Matthew T. Dickerson from, uh, from Middlebury college is going to be with us and he's going to be addressing some themes that are going to be great to, to talk about, particularly related to, to Tolkien and uh, ecological concerns. And uh, I'm also going to bring up 
Lewis with him while he's here because he did write a book on that. If you want to check him out on, you know, uh, Amazon, he's got a, like many people do, has an author page there. And you can see that he's written on everything from fly fishing to, you know, to, to ecology to fantasy, uh, and and even uh, he's dealt with the mind, you know, uh, body problem as he, as from the perspective of a, a computer scientist. So there's a lot of stuff there that Matthew could talk about. We'll probably need to bring him back more than once to just kind of explore some of the other stuff that he likes to, to get into. But anyway, thanks a lot for listening and watching to uh, to, to the Theology Podcast today. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.